0: This is Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. It's been a while since I've made a broadcast to my dear listeners. And I i thought it might be interesting to you all to hear a little general update on things I've been thinking about and doing with my life ...some interactions and highlights of the last couple weeks. So, here goes. Recently, today, uh, reading Nietzsche, Twilight of the Idols... ...I was struck to realize that he had suffered in the last ten years of his life. Frederick Nietzsche had uh, ten years of paralysis... And physical trauma due to what was being, at the time, declared as going insane. So he was in quite a state, the great philosopher in the last decade, 10 years of his life that he spent. And I found that to be really striking as I think about how challenging it is to be a person who asks difficult questions of one's time. And I find myself identifying with figures like Nietzsche, actually, not to be some megalomaniac, but honestly, I can relate to much of what he writes. And I feel that he has a very reasonable analysis. However, I think that life for him without knowing the man was probably quite, Challenging and difficult, clearly leading to a uh, uh, end state for him of an entire decade of very unpleasant mental and physical condition that he suffered, that one could infer, I think reasonably, that it, it was it was related to what an intense philosophical mind Nietzsche had. And I don't mean to equate myself with him in the sense of any caliber of philosophical content that Nietzsche put down, but simply in the sense that I think Nietzsche, for many of us in the contemporary age, is a a symbolic figure of a real radical, somebody who who really started questioning society and our values uh, early on for the Western Culture uh, right up late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. He dies right at the about the turn of the century, right at nineteen hundred, at sixty six years of age. And you know, I had I had an experience I wanted to talk about. Really, well, I was away and and not doing podcasts and not recording things, and it was it was a little bit challenging for me. Uh, Helped me get in touch with my sense of my inner radical. I was uh, out to some breakfast with friends in Cape Cod where we're enjoying the lovely landscape. And the first morning and the first day we get there, it rains kind of hard. So we go to this place where we're standing around waiting for a long time because everybody in Cape Cod's eating out. It's raining. And... We end up all eating together in the back room and this one dad of a child who Juniper, my daughter, has been friends with for years. Um, for my sensibilities, in the context, it kind of blurts out this statement you know, about neoliberalism and how neoliberals have kept the roads being fixed and the electric running. And don't we have to admit that we benefited from that, and I was pretty offended by that. I, the way I construed it was that was a quite outrageous presupposition to put into his language that to state it as a foregone conclusion that because highways are fixed and electrical lines are intact, we should be thankful to some what I see as awful destructive, exploitative, and toxic scenario that we're in at present. Excuse me. So I got a little bit confrontational with him, and I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with you. This system has basically killed my dad a cancer and is polluting the air, water, and soil. And he throws back at me, he doesn't care about my dad, why am I bringing in patriarchy This was quite a throwdown, and quickly throws down that he doesn't respect me, any of my work, thinks we're basically just people who have a high opinion of themselves, but really are just self-righteous, when in fact we are feeding from the spoon of the system that we denigrate, which is this wondrous neoliberalism teat that we feed off of. So, You know, I explained that actually I don't think we're rich because he was saying, well, look at how rich we are. And I was saying, actually, I think we're quite poor. Do you realize that we live in a country where 900 atomic bombs have been blown up within our lifetime? I mean, the testing that went on with nuclear weapons in this country is something that every person who considers themselves an informed and educated citizen owes themselves the responsibility to be more Self-educated. And what I was finding so frustrating in this interaction was first, the personal attacks. Second, the desire to denounce everything that I stood for and had done as a person as being irrelevant. And third, the constant uh, assumption that the state of affairs that we live in is in some way good. Uh, Which it was profound Reality check for me, right? I'm like, wow. So people genuinely believe that things are beyond okay. We uh, owe thanks to the system. And I have the polar opposite viewpoint, honestly. This system, the system, um, uh, if you have to ask me, generally speaking, I'd be happy if the electric lines were broken and the highways were broken and we were forced into clusters of micro and self-reliance due to duress. However, I'm more interested in a slow and calibrated phase-out of a reliance upon the electric lines and the highways due to my desire to see human beings maintain dignity, health, and quality of life. And what I've noticed is my fellow Americans, in particular this individual who decided to just pull the rug out from under me and say, you know, Ten years of friendship and relationships. Who cares? I don't care about you. And people dying of cancer is something I didn't know about. But who cares? The real problem we have is uh, refugees in Yemen. And you're not talking enough about that. To synopsize this total train wreck of values and human interaction that I had the pleasure to enjoy on my vacation first morning, Cape Cod. And, (laughs) you know, there we are having this just on different planets and you know the the thing is that you begin to realize that there is no vision there is no sense of self responsibility there is very often a lost child kind of mentality that is indulged especially in the white privileged male population of this country that likes to think that in some way they're entitled to feeling put upon and powerless and therefore they can lash out at others in angry and inconsiderate ways and be forgiven for it. And, you know, when that kind of thing happens to you personally, you realize, okay, there is truth to the fact that many people are basically anti-intellectual and don't really like people. challenge their presuppositions, even if it's in a relatively neutral and philosophical way. I enjoy a heated disputation as much as the next person. And let's get into it. Uh, However, let's not get personal and start saying that what you do for a living is something that I think is worthless because I don't agree with you. Then you've gotten into a whole other realm of dynamic that is really... In, it, now we're into conflict resolution skills needing to come into um, play. And that's basically what I did was what in co-counseling is called step down. And fortunately, in this interaction, I was blessed to have my wonderful partner, Adriana, there who was stepping up for me so elegantly that I felt the wonder of her support was really the strongest outcome of this whole interaction for me personally on a personal level. And also very profound to realize how different the values are of, let me just say, many of the families that uh, we share the alternative education community with that labels itself by this pedagogical term called Waldorf. Um, Not to come out in a public setting here in my podcast and say too many negative things about Waldorf, but for many of you who know me and know much of my history, Um, I taught for 10 years at a school that was very close to one of the very, let's just say, posh and elite Waldorf schools, which is called the Kimberton Waldorf School, and they probably somewhat suffer from elitism due to the very nice old fieldstone buildings that they are graced to have as part of their infrastructure and institutional complex, and I don't disparage them that, nor do I disparage Waldorf the capacity to create A very beautiful bubble in which children can be reared and nurtured in a manner that doesn't exist anywhere else largely in the educational system in this country. And as a family that absolutely appreciates and has gleaned some value and benefit from the Waldorf experience for Juniper in her early education times... It has become very clear that in certain microcosms, certain Waldorf schools uh, are not very good at evolving, uh, incorporating new educational philosophies. And in particular, not very good at having the humility to say, perhaps we need to give back to our local community more and have... A way of teaching children that also gets them involved in community service and giving back because so many things are broken in our society that we need to be actively as a school modeling this more community service-based type of, you know, program that is pretty much non-existent except for taking kids to, say, a biodynamic farm and you know, some stuff that I think is great because schools don't even do that for the most part. Uh, But how about gleaning from an organic farm and taking it to a homeless shelter and working in a soup kitchen for fourth and fifth graders, you know, just as one example. And these were some of the things that we were pointing out to our friend who was saying, you know, I think that we're powerless to really change anything. And, Look at the people suffering in Yemen, which I keep coming back to because I feel like it is this iconic thing that people do in the Western media where they've been programmed to think they are ineffective because there's no suffering right out their door that they actually perpetuate and could alleviate by addressing and paying attention to. No, no, no. The big problems are on the screen and are somewhere else. And we're powerless to do anything about them because the war machine is bigger than us. And I would like to suggest that quite the opposite is true. The war machine is us and it ripples out from our doorstep due to our lack of attention to the real issues in our local communities. The main work, and it's valiant work, it's meaningful work, is for us to wake up, pay attention... And begin to actively get involved in doing positive work for our friends, our family, our community, our neighbors. The people who we live with and around in the communities where we reside. We all are part of a community. People say, oh, I want to go join a community. I'm going to create a community. You, You live in a community, no matter what. I guarantee you, where you live there's a community that you're interacting with. The people you interact with every day, the places you go, that's your community. And the more we pay attention to who we live in relationship to that is directly in our landscape, the more we begin to realize, hey, there's actually a lot of real opportunity and real need. People who really, if you have some skills and ability and can produce some food and connect some dots, uh, there's a great deal of populations that will benefit from your generosity and create a ripple effect, a reciprocity of, it's called mutually beneficial relationships. And we need to be actively building them with people who we share values with and we see also have great need. The permaculture ethic is to reach out to those who are the most disenfranchised, the fringe, the people who are not receiving what it is that they need because they aren't part of the privileged inner circle. And it really burns me to have people who are part of privileged society sit there and tell me that in some way I'm benefiting from a system that exploits people, pollutes the water, pollutes the air, and makes us poorer and poorer every day. It made me abundantly aware of how deep the brainwashing is in this country. How damaged the psychology of many, many Americans is. This myth that we don't have an effect in the world is one of the most, how shall I put it, really insidious and it it's dysfunctional this myth it renders us unable to feel positive about our work in the world and in fact leads to the capacity to rationalize and justify indulging yourself in doing work that basically gives back nothing in terms of changing the quality of life for yourself your family your community and future generations and what we're leaving to them and it is I'll go so far as to say a tragedy that we hear many people uh, aptly Aptly making the generalization that my generation, talking about my generation, right? 50, uh, not not, generally speaking uh, morally or ethically inclined in terms of their livelihoods. And when you are somebody who has, you know, done the work, to stay engaged and stay real about how you make money. You know what what Adriana and I do with the Center for Bioregional Living is without a doubt an ethical and social business that you know our focus is positive change in the world. However, I do acknowledge that that in our generation is highly unusual And I am not trying to put us on a pedestal or a high horse with that comparison. It is a recognition and an observation as to why, again, this conflict that I started this discussion with arose. Because what you'll find is that people who are your peers, colleagues, similar age compare themselves to you and what I realized in this communication breakdown that happened where this person got so angry with me and personal in such a short amount of time what I realized was that they had been comparing themselves to me to us in their mind and they felt inferior and they felt angry and they felt threatened and they felt guilty And I felt some compassion. I felt a little bit sorry. But honestly, what I really felt was please grow up and become a mature adult and show some respect for yourself and people who you know who have been working hard to do real work in the world and to disparage us and to disparage our work over something that really was just a political Discussion about infrastructure was so bizarre and unreasonable and unnecessary and disappointing I'm sorry to say and share with you uh, really a loss that I wanted to talk about as an example for you of the interactions that I have in my daily life with people and how little they understand the work that we do and how sometimes how they understand it causes them to categorize us in a manner that makes them feel threatened or guilty because they think perhaps we're eco-gurus who look down our noses at people who aren't as eco as us when quite the contrary is the case. Our work is to give back to everybody in the world around us in a way that we feel is the most accessible to them. If you need us to help you plant something or grow something or understand your land, we're there for you. If you want to learn how to live closer to the earth and give back to your friends and family in these ways, we're there for you. Now, this is our work, and to and to act as if it's in some way uh, like uh, emerging out of ego kind of phenomenon is so just a deep misunderstanding, and not that surprising because. You know, we're culturally conditioned to do this kind of petty comparison game in our mental landscapes, this constant tendency to need to feel superior uh, really is so unhealthy and unproductive. We, we need to let go of these tendencies to want to pigeonhole each other into categories and then judge each other based on our presuppositions. Some of the most damaging things that people do in the modern psychosis of Western conditioned consciousness is this comparative game of struggle. You know, this need to be judging whether we're on a superior footing to our fellow human based on some cultural mind game of who says what words that we associate meaning and power to you know the real meaning and power in the world is the capacity for us to give back to the people around us and make life easier and more enjoyable for future generations by healing the air healing the water and improving the biodiversity of this planet and let's get on with that work and anybody who wants to get on with that work that's who we're working with that's who we've been working with that's what I've been doing for oh let's see since you know, 1992, full time as my employment and in my personal life, and so I can see why people might think on an interpersonal level. Oh, you know, he some, but not if you really know me. Not if you really know me. No, you know I don't judge people. You know I don't have some conceit and ego. You know that what I want is to build positive relations and create positive work in the world. As all the people who I know who work in this field are driven by this shared passion of healing. This is a healing work. We're healing the whole system, the whole human being. And that is challenging work. And at the same time, very inspiring work that I'm profoundly struck by these fundamental terms that we need to reclaim like rich and poor Uh, again to come back to this this dichotomy that was being created in this disputation you know there was this statement that look at how rich we are and i was saying no we're poor and oh of course you'd say that mr eco guy i'm like yeah we're poor the air is polluted the oh yes of course like, what, how can you argue with somebody who wants to just discount what you're saying as being uh, not credible because you're just striking an opposing viewpoint that doesn't at all recognize that, in fact, those things are valid points and we need to have a conversation about the fact that we are not rich in this country. 37% of our rivers and streams so polluted that we can't fish in them and we can't swim in them. 37 percent, 50 percent of lakes and ponds, unfishable and unswimmable. So polluted by dirty industries, private industries, corporate entities that are usually a sidearm of existing corporate entities, let's say like DuPont or Dow or Monsanto. Who happen to have formed a side company that they called something like Geocon. And then they'll form a bankruptcy claim. And they won't have to pay for the Superfund site reclamation that costs millions of dollars after they abandon the facility. No, no, no. No. Who has to pick up the tab on that? We do. The taxpayers. And so... You've got this Superfund program in this country, but, you know, most people, again, are so unself-educated in the toxic legacy of the military-industrial complex, they don't realize that we're actually poor. That's how brainwashed most Americans are, because they're sitting around watching what the media tells them, and they don't think for themselves enough to say, am I living in a place actually where the air is polluted? New York City, never once in compliance with the Clean Air Act. Why do we even have the Clean Air Act? I was just reading recently that a refinery that an EPA administrator went and gave a talk at had out of 12 times, 11 times been in non-compliance with the Clean Air Act. Why are we allowing facilities to continue to operate in the United States who 11 out of 12 times aren't even in compliance, aren't doing things that are what the federal government says they're supposed to be doing, and so far as what types of pollution they're letting out of their facility, right? So they're in chronic violation of it, but they continue to operate. Insanity. And if you don't understand that issue and put that as a primary issue, you don't understand what human beings need to live. Because what human beings have to have is good air to breathe first, number two, good water to drink second. Number three, amazing, nutritionally dense, vital, uncontaminated food to enjoy imbibing in community together that comes from local, not very far away, and not very processed sources that are diverse. right? Now, as we start to define those as the parameters of the good life of a country, the health of the country and the people is the bottom line of our economic system. And until we honor that, we're gonna to continue to have a loose cannon here that is just taken out the American people in an inglorious and an invaliant way. And it was insulting to have somebody who knew me personally say to me that my own parent being taken out from those things and those issues were not the big issues. We should be worried about what's happening in Yemen and we should be feeling powerless because we can't do anything about that. And what I'm suggesting is that actually our power starts right here, right now and it has to do with how we live our lives and we all have a responsibility and it is sad and disappointing to me to have educated adults who I thought even respected me on a personal level actually take very little accountability for their role in perpetuating polluted air and polluted water and instead are myopically focused on short-term system services like whether a highway is fixed or electricity works in their domicile. This is the petty short-sightedness that we are going to continue to have to compel ourselves to evolve beyond as individuals and collectively as a society move towards a more thorough and well-developed human being who can look at the entire system to understand more comprehensively who we are and where we are and what it is that we would like to grow and nurture to continue to see emerge and increase in our midst as a species And we need to pay attention to those things that we are perpetuating the increase of but do not feel are honorable, have integrity, and improve the health of the air, the health of the water, the health of people's quality of life and full diet, the health of future generations and what they will inherit. And this is really where I think we need to realize that we have to have an articulate vision that we move towards, that we hold up as primarily what we are rallying around, and at the same time hold true to the course of informing people about the true costs of this industrial system. If people do not understand that at present Americans are deeply deeply at risk and have A profound accountability to the rest of the world. To turn the course around from self-destruction, self-annihilation, militarism, and move towards cleaning up and healing our relationships to each other, to the land, to our diets, the food that we eat, the plants that we raise, the animals that we live in relationship with. All of these understandings are part of the direction that we're moving towards as we manifest a vision, a true vision for our potential on this planet. A vision that embraces the deep spiritual ethical opportunities that are before us to honor what it is that we've been handed to, in fact, embrace our inheritance and do something creative with it, imaginative with it, something that gives back more than we've taken. And this is the opportunity that we have in this day and age to say, no longer are we going to sit back in the cozy armchair of the military-industrial complex and watch cable TV and eat Cheetos. In fact, now we are going to get up from the lazy boy chair in front of the TV and we're going to go outside and just sit outside a lot and look at the sky and look at the stars and dance in the rain and give thanks for the sunrise and the sunset and create nice places to be with our friends where we're around fires and cooking at night and telling stories and talking to one another. And this is the new society, the old society, merging into a culture that we want to be part of, that we love being part of. This is Andrew Faust. Thank you for listening. Really would appreciate any feedback, insights, thoughts. I hope people enjoyed. Hope, my dear listeners, hope you've enjoyed this romp through Andrew's inner psychology. A little combination of uh, therapy and podcast today. So, appreciate you listening and giving feedback And look forward to connecting with you all again soon. Be well.